Hello and welcome. You are listening to Fearless with Mark and Amber, the intersection of faith, family, and filmmaking. Part four today. Part four. Time to wrap it up. That's right. <laughs> oh, man. This is an epic story is what it is. Oh, you guys. Well, especially when, when we've been working on it for so long. So for those of you who may just be joining us, hello and welcome. I'm Amber. I'm Mark. And... In 2018, we began making a documentary film about how our local community became known as the second largest abortion desert in the United States. And the things that we've learned along the way and the people that we've interviewed has been an experience like none other. And we've even interviewed the abortionist, hence interview, interview with the abortionist. With the abortionist. Yes. So in fall of 2018, we found ourselves sitting in the then defunct, it had been a defunct abortion clinic for five years, even at that point. But creepily enough, George Clopper would still come to his clinic every Wednesday night. Mm -hmm. He would sleep in his clinic, and then Thursday he would go home. And the reason for that was because Thursdays were his procedure, procedure days. days. Yeah. And uh, so George Clopper was the one that after he died, they discovered that he had been hoarding 2,241 fetal remains in his garage in the trunk of his car. Mm -hmm. And he's extensively in the film because we interviewed him for the film. Um, part four, I think, is my favorite part because it's where you and George pretty much go at it toe to toe. You didn't really back off from him <laughs> at all. I don't think he knew what to make of you. I, and I'll have to let me throw in this this comment before 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 they give a listen, right? Because because. And, and you guys, I, I'm really nice. I really am. I promise. She, <laughs> but I, and we've said, how, I want to say this delicately, but you think about what an abortionist does all day mm -hmm. and how women, what his relationship is with women all day. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let's just leave it at that. Right. And George did this for probably 40 years mm -hmm. or more. So his attitude towards women in general. Oh, he wouldn't even look at me. The first the, the first 10, 15 minutes. Right. Like, I'm not looking at you. I'm not talking to you. I'm not even going to acknowledge that you exist. Right. Yeah. I, I, I don't think, I mean, I don't think that he knew what to make of a strong female who was not there for a procedure. Right. And so what, uh, what, what tell tell our listeners about mm -hmm. what it was like going toe to toe with this man. Well, I think I think just to back up and and just to kind of put things into perspective, I think, you know, when when we went in, I just wanted to make sure to share Christ first and foremost, and I was just really looking for that opportunity of when that could happen, but I had no idea the types of I don't I don't even know what to say like misinformation mm -hmm. like the nonsense the the nonsense of his of well, his thinking and he logic all, he was all over the place oh my word it was it was everywhere and it was it was wasn't all abortion related either it was you could tell he was lonely like he didn't have anybody to talk to and he just he just <laughs> went on these rants about just irrelevant, anything and everything irrelevant things yeah. just very strange. Yeah, but at the end of the day, he was still a man in need of Christ. And and really that was my heart going into it, knowing that and and I 
didn't know if we would ever get a chance to talk to him again. Mm -hmm. So, you know, never waste an opportunity. You don't know if there will be another. Right. You know, one of the interesting things that I meant to add in the last episode was just a little bit of history about George and his dad Mm -hmm. and how George, you know, how George came to be in America. George was immigrant. He was an immigrant. He was one of seven from Germany, from Dresden, Germany. They were refugees, Mm -hmm. basically. George's dad, and this is this is in the book, the companion book that's coming in a couple of months. (laughs) I'm working on it. Yeah. George's dad, his name was Oscar. And George's dad, Oscar, was a uh, chemical engineer, uh, worked at a company in Dresden called IG Farben Industries. Um, his dad was a Nazi, mm-hmm. was not a Nazi scientist. He, he was a member of the Nazi party, which was not uncommon in Germany during World War II. Right, they had to be. You kind of had to be yeah. or you would disappear. Mm-hmm. Um so his dad didn't work for the military. He worked for IG Farben Industries. Uh, the creepy thing is that uh, although we don't have anything directly tying Oscar to these developments, but IG Farben Industries is is tied to the development of the nerve agents that were used in the concentration mm-hmm. camps. Um, also sarin gas and Tabin gas. Mm-hmm. These are nerve agents that that you know chemical warfare agents. Mm-hmm. Oscar was brought with his family, which included George, to the U.S. through a secret U.S. intelligence agency program called Operation Paperclip. Yeah, and you can go look it up. This is it was, it's, <laughs> it's it's crazy. It is too crazy to believe, but it's true. We have we have the declassified uh, documentation, documentation of... <laughs> U.S. government documentation about bringing Oscar over. He was mm-hmm. a chemical engineer. He was sponsored by the United States Army and brought over with the whole family. They came in through Detroit and settled just outside of Detroit. George grew up going to American high school in the 50s. He graduated, uh, I forget the name of the high school, but just outside of Detroit in, I think, 1959. Right. We've got one of his high school yearbooks. (laughs) We have one of his high school yearbooks. Um, and so Oscar was a chemical engineer, went to work. Uh, he was uh, worked in organic chemistry, went to work for a company in Michigan in the Detroit area developing uh, synthetic rubber products for the, for the Army. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's how they got here. But George talked about uh, in, in this uh, episode, part of the episode, he talks about Uncle Adolf and Mussolini and Stalin Ugh. and how I don't want to give too much of it away, but you know, he, he referred to uncle Adolf and Mussolini and Stalin and kind of laughed about it. Saying that they're all going to be there in heaven, right, that they're all going to be in heaven and they're all going to laugh about all this. And, uh-huh. Um, really, really disturbing, disturbing dialogue. But, um, let's give a listen to the, the final installment of interview with, with the abortionist part four. Interview with the Abortionist, Part 4. George was starting to get agitated with both of us. We both sat and let him talk for a good 25 minutes straight, only interrupting him from time to time to ask questions for clarification. We hadn't yet really started to debate him on things, and 
that really wasn't our intent. Our intent when we came in was to try to understand his story and background, then ask him tough questions in a fair but direct manner. It didn't take long, though, before we both started interrupting him regularly to challenge him on his, how shall I say, divergence from reality, trying to justify his argument that life only begins when a baby can be born and survive on his or her own outside the mother's womb. <sighs> George strolled right into the line of fire from Amber. Life does not begin at conception. A fertilized egg in a test tube is not a life. It's a fertilized egg in a test tube. My body is not a test tube. Amber slapped the table and leaned in. George recoiled and collected himself. I understand that, but you're saying <laughs> life begins at conception. And if I take an egg and put a sperm in a test tube and, and, and the sperm fertilizes the egg, it it's not a life. George slapped the table as he raised his voice even further. Amber came right back at him. You know as a doctor that women's bodies are designed that way to carry these children. To, to, to let the fertilized egg develop in your uterus, to become a fetus. And to then become to be, a child. To become a child. And right. then to be Thank born. You. Yes. And, and, and the point is, at conception, until a fetus is viable outside the uterus, in my book, in that's not book. a life. I was still watching in amazement as my beautiful bride not only faced off with George, but fired right back at him in rapid succession. I honestly don't think he had any idea what to make of her. Amber stared him down for a moment. Do you believe you, you, what, you, you, what you, you. do you believe that what you what you've done is right? Do you believe it in your I, heart in the I, hardest, yes. I gave the women part I gave, I gave the women the choice to make a to make the choice whether to choose to have an abortion or whether to have the child. Mm -hmm. Okay? Whether it's the right choice or the wrong choice. Have you asked know. for forgiveness for, for killing children? Have you asked for forgiveness no, for killing I for I a sin? Kill children. You you don't No. Your 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 conception and my conception when life begins is different. You know that in the womb and in the mother's body that it's a baby. No, it's a fetus. In that moment I pondered the gravity of what I had just heard. And see, I came into this conversation expecting a discussion of logic. And instead, what I was hearing was a game of semantics. You know, semantics. It's very simple. Just change the words. Just call it something else. Redefine the terminology. It's not a baby, it's a fetus. All right, there. Now, now we can feel better about removing that unwanted growth, that fetus, and moving on with our lives. See how easy that was? But Amber didn't come in to debate semantics. She came in to share the gospel with George. The Lord is so forgiving to all of us. When we get to heaven and we Jesus, Joseph Stalin, Uncle Adolf, and Mussolini. Well, I doubt that they'll be there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you're making a judgment. Well. <laughs> the Lord is forgiving. <laughs> the, the, that's right. The Lord is forgiving for those who call on him. Uh, and, and then the bottom line is all, we all in life make a choice. I leaned back in my chair to avoid being struck by lightning as this man openly mocked God. Amber didn't let up on him. George hadn't budged even a millimeter in this conversation. He didn't kill children. He removed unwanted fetuses. 
And that is all there is to justification in the mind of an abortionist to taking the life of a child in the womb. In George's mind, it is settled fact that life only begins when the baby is born, or when it is able to survive outside the womb on its own, or at 24 weeks, or was it 20? But that answer depends on which time period of justification we're talking about, because it has shifted, and therein lies the problem. The shifting sands of the argument. The abortionist, just the same as any other humanist, lives by a set of non-specific, ever-shifting non-absolutes. Whenever the equation comes out to an answer they don't like, they simply plug new variables into the equation until they achieve the outcome they desire. The biggest problem with this is that it forces one to completely detach from all absolutes, which is what George did a long time ago. From denial of God, to a denial of God's absolutes, to a denial of science, to a denial of reality, there is no way to argue with a man whose absolutes don't exist. As we wrapped up our conversation with George that morning, he shook our hands and showed us to the door, even walking us outside to our car. If it weren't for the fact that we had just been debating his justification for being an abortionist for 40 years, I would almost have said it was a pleasant ending to a strange and strained conversation. I couldn't help but wonder just what he was feeling after having been challenged for over an hour. In the car and halfway down the block, we both felt ourselves start to finally break the tension that had unknowingly gripped us both through the entire meeting. As we drove back to pick up our youngest child, Caitlin, who had literally been born just a few months earlier, I felt a strange sadness coming over me for George. We later confirmed his age to see if he could indeed have lived through the Dresden bombings. It checks out. And I think that makes me the most sad for him. Maybe it's lifelong symptoms of PTSD. Maybe he had a terrible home life. Whatever it was, or maybe a combination of things, it made that young boy grow up to be a man who had a big dead spot inside. Unable to see the Lord's creation for what it truly is, he sank further and further into a world that destroyed his soul and never let him out of its grasp. And for that young boy, I feel empathy. As we told people over the next few days and weeks about our conversation with George, we repeated one thing above all else. We asked people to please pray for George and others like him. I am grateful that he had been stopped from his awful practice, but I hurt for the man who had been destroyed by the murderous work that he had done his entire life. What hope is there for an ex-abortionist who has been abandoned by all? No longer useful to the abortion industry, why would they even have anything else to do with him? I pondered for weeks after our meeting why on earth George would still come every week to his clinic, only to turn around the next morning and go home again. There were many possibilities that I envisioned, but one thing was for certain. George was lonely. We could tell that just by how much he was willing to talk with us. And loneliness is something that I can certainly understand. So I prayed even more for George, that hopefully one day he would remember that the Lord is forgiving, even to a repentant abortionist. This concludes this audiobook. Thanks for listening. Be sure to visit InwoodDriveMovie.com to purchase your copy of the documentary film Inwood Drive. 
Also watch for the companion book to the film, also entitled Inwood Drive, with many more stories like the one you just heard, documenting the production of one of the most definitive films on the subject of abortion. Well, thank you for your time, sir. Okay, you're welcome. Thank you. So, do you have a baby boy? A baby we, had, we have three girls. Oh, three girls? Oh, wow. <laughs> we lost two, but have our three girls. Okay, good. <laughs> that, that's fine. Yeah. You know, hey. The Lord has a plan for us all. My oldest brother, he was always the boss, and I was the worst child of all seven, because uh, when I came home, my mother used to beat the on me, and then my dad, when he came home from work, I did get a second helping. <laughs> so. It's too bad, sorry. No, 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 no. You know what about life? When you get older, you look back, and you can enjoy the good and the bad. So, welcome back. Finally, part four. <laughs> the conclusion of the matter. The conclusion of the matter. Yeah, George George was really a very lonely man. And yeah, um there is still there 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 is enough grace for even a man like George Klopfer, who was an abortionist and, and took the lives of thousands, tens of thousands of lives himself. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. We haven't, we didn't really even talk about this in the film, but the morning that we found out that George had died, mm. I think it was a Saturday morning. He had died a few days earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, it was a strange feeling because I, I don't want to say that we, we hadn't befriended him in any way. We really were but we were praying for him. No, but we really loved him as much as we could. I we mean, as much him. as you can, lo- you, you you can still love people and and extend that grace because you know what? We have all been extended that same grace. Yes, we have. And and so it was kind of, it was a little sad, but you know, on the other hand, you're like, I don't, you don't know. Nobody knows. Nobody knows where he was um, spiritually. Right. The only reference we had was what our interaction was with him, where he was defiant. Right. And, uh, you know, that he didn't need forgiveness and and, uh, everything was going to be fine. The interesting thing was, though, that he, you would think that somebody like him would be just a total atheist, and he really wasn't. No. He believed believed in God. He believed that there was a heaven, and, and he believed he was going there. He believed he was going there because he hadn't done anything wrong. Right. And that was really sad. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we, and as as you said, we, as repentant uh, and forgiven people, broken people ourselves, we understood that if the Lord could forgive us, that he could forgive George. Absolutely. And w- so when that's he- what the w- Lord, That's what the word of the Lord says. That's right. And so when we found out that George had died, there was- it was a strange feeling. We were sad because we wondered if George had mm-hmm. had made peace with the Lord before he passed. Yeah. I, we just don't know. Right. We just don't know. Nope. So until next time, now now what are we going to talk about? I, I mean. We'll, we'll think of something. <laughs> we'll talk about our children. I don't know. <laughs> no. <laughs> we'll get back to ministry. Right. All about the Lord. Okay. All right, you guys. Well, thank you for joining us and tuning in to another episode. Thanks for joining us. And if you want to have the whole audio book, you can download it from fearlessfeatures.org. That's right. Go check out our ministry, fearlessfeatures.org. See you later. See ya. See ya.